Use your phone. It's in your lap okay, right there. I just don't want to put my hands down. I'm really sorry. I'm just... You're just really drunk. No, no, no. I've just been wasting many videos. But you're not black. Remember, we only kill black people. Yeah, we only kill black people, right? All the videos you've seen, have you seen black people get killed? You have. You're listening to Afropunk Solution Sessions. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. And I'm your co-host, Eve Jeffcoat. Afropunk is a safe place, a blank space to freak out in, to construct a new reality, to live our lives as we see fit while making sense of the world around us. Here at Afropunk, we have the conversations that matter to us, conversations that lead to solutions. If you're Black in America, you probably already know what we mean when we say the talk. We actually have a line that we do at our house. We practice this thing. What is it? I'm Ariel Sky Williams. I'm eight years old. I'm unarmed and I have nothing that will hurt you. It's just kind of a thing we practice at our house. There are great police officers out there. There's also some police officers who are not so good. And my fear is that you run across one of those bad ones. Why, why would a police officer assume that you did something bad? Maybe because of my skin color. We teach black youth to be hyper-aware of their behavior during encounters with police. Don't make any sudden movements. Tell the officers before you reach into your pocket or glove box, even if you're doing so because they asked you to. Don't say anything or do anything that can be misconstrued as a threat. And we do this to keep our black youth alive. We live in a world where we teach black children to be more self-possessed than trained and armed police officers, so we don't give them a reason to feel threatened. What kind of a world is this? When we think about the talk and police violence, we often think about it in terms of black men. The people who become the faces of unrest. Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, Philando Castile. But what about black women and girls? And what about gender nonconforming black folks? What about how police violence shows up in black queer communities? These questions came up at Solution Sessions in Atlanta. Here's Miss Lawrence, a multi-talented actor, activist, and performer. Someone such as myself, you know, 100 years ago, you know, out in the streets, wandering around on the south side of Atlanta, I get pulled over by a cop, or I get stopped by a cop, and I'm harassed. Nobody gives a fuck. Nobody cares because I'm a little young black gay boy, so nobody's gonna go pound the streets because I was innocent and, you know, they know that the police is wrong. Solution Sessions panelist Andrea Ritchie's work is all about broadening the conversation around police violence. You know, it, it started for me at the time of the Rodney King case in the early 90s. That's like letting them know it's okay to beat people in the street and get away with it. Continue on Keep doing it. people. You know what I'm saying? And after the verdicts came in, they was all celebrating. You seen them celebrating, hugging, shaking hands, you know? And then it was so bad about it. They got them on tape acting just crazy. But in court, they trying to be all nice and trying to make people feel sorry for them. You know, that's, that's an act, man. They need to lock all of them up, all of them. And that's why everybody mad right now. Because if it would have been somebody black, they would have been locked up. Black people today and, and in, the, in the past been trying to settle matters like this with like non-violent, right? But they, see, they ain't getting nowhere. So the only way you can do it is with violence. Can't take no more. Whatever, like, you gotta, you gotta do the same thing they're doing to you. Everybody, like, when white officers, they was violent, everybody else would get violent. 
Why they trying to be violent against young black males? So they like, everybody tired of it, they finna just retaliate. Ain't nobody taking it no more. Even if they gotta die for the cause, I think that's what they gonna do. I was living in Toronto at the time, and when the non-indictment came down, Toronto had one of the biggest protests in its history at that time. I think people often imagine that the reaction to the Rodney King case and the non-indictment at the state level, or the non or the not guilty verdict at the state level, you know, was confined to the U.S., but it really sort of generated this international outrage. I gotta do my job. Hey, hey, man, hey, hey, why are you doing this in your community, man? These clothes belong to some of your neighbors. No. You don't care? I don't care. Why? Around the same time, you know, a black woman, a Jamaican woman uh, named Audrey Smith, had been strip searched uh, by police officers on a very busy street corner in Toronto. If you, you know, if you live in an urban area, just think of the busiest street corner, um, and then imagine a black woman standing on that corner at one in the morning, and you know, hanging out and waiting, and then police officers walking up to her and telling her to lift up her shirt to prove that she's not carrying drugs because she, quote unquote, looks like a drug dealer. What do you want? from the Metro Police, who you say did this thing to you? These officers that do need this terrible, wicked act. I need justice. Justice. That could have been my mom, it could have been my aunt, it could have been my cousin, it could have been my niece, it could have been anyone in my family who, simply by virtue of being a black woman and standing on a street corner, uh, would be perceived by police officers, uh, you know, or, or treated by police officers as if she's a drug dealer, and then forced to strip in public in ways that are very kind of reminiscent of black women being stripped on auction blocks in the context of slavery. But, you know, the rest of the world was still sort of talking about police violence only as in the form that Rodney King experienced it and not in the form that Audrey Smith experienced it. Andrea began documenting the ways police violence played out with black women and girls and reporting her fightings to a Toronto police task force. But what began to weigh on her was how these cases and the culture surrounding them were basically invisible. At first I sort of thought, well, maybe the lack of information. Right? So I started documenting these cases and testifying about them in front of the Toronto City Police Board, and, but realized quickly that it wasn't, it was simply, it wasn't only that people weren't aware of these cases, they were kind of invisible in the larger conversations, both about police violence and about uh, gender-based violence or sexual violence. But it was also that people in kind of both of those movements, mainstream movements, sort of weren't prioritizing those forms or stories of violence as part of the larger narrative and the, the stories that kind of drive the analysis of those issues. Andrea says police and state violence against black women and girls often goes overlooked because it so often happens in private spaces, in the back of a police car, in a welfare office or group home. And while we've shifted into a culture that tells us to keep an eye out when we see police interacting with a black person on the street, no such culture has sprang up to protect black women specifically. Basically, law enforcement is turning cries for help into calls to arms. Police interactions can turn violent and even deadly at times when we're expecting protection. It happens often in the context of child welfare enforcement, Andrea says, and during policing of sex workers. Particularly when it comes to police sexual violence, it's happening in the back of a police car, it's happening in a deserted area, it's happening inside a police precinct. It's just not visible to folks who, you know, are in the area who could then film and and organize around it. But beyond the fact that they're often happening in private spaces, away from the vigilant eyes of cop watchers, 
is the fact that we don't see Black women as deserving of protection. As a society, we've just been conditioned to not literally not see the pain or suffering or violence perpetrated against Black women and girls, and whether that's by the state or by members of our community, and that obviously is deeply rooted in in slavery and colonialism, and but persists to this day. This mentality starts early. Even young Black girls are seen as more adult and more responsible for their actions. They're more dangerous, threatening, and sexualized at younger ages than their white counterparts. Those are the kinds of perceptions we need to shift because those are the things that make it such that when we see police interacting with someone like Shakisha Clemens and physically and sexually violating her, people's responses are, well, what did she do? Well, she's responsible. And it's the things that make the people who called the police on the black women who are, you know, just golfing at the club that they're members of, say, well, she's not armed except with her mouth, right? To sort of perceive any black woman's presence or voice or protest of discrimination as a threat. Those are the kinds of perceptions that make police violence and state violence against black women and community violence against black women invisible. Let's take a quick break. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. At Solution Sessions, folks were ready to challenge those perceptions. Hey, um, my name is Steven, and I had a question about police brutality and criminalization about perception. So a lot of black Men have been killed by police over the years, but it seems like to me that when black women are killed, they're held to like a higher standard. And I'm thinking about Kareem Gaines, like there was no video of her being actually killed, like there was no video of Michael Brown being killed, but yet people seem to think that she deserved to die while others think that people like Michael Brown or Tamar Rice or whatever didn't deserve to die. So how can we change our perceptions, black people's perceptions on who deserves justice and who doesn't deserve justice? Thank you so much for that question. And there's a particular thing in our own community about how we just don't see violence against black women. We don't recognize it and we don't stand up for it. We don't, we don't organize around it. And we need to stop. We need to stop talking about this like it doesn't affect 
black folks of all genders and that we don't have different expectations of behavior. Like, I think the politics of respectability get applied 10 times more to black women, you know, and I and to black girls and black trans and gender nonconforming folks. And I think we need to really challenge that. So I think the, the answer to your question is to raise the question like you just did, to have the conversation and to push ourselves to step out every time we see violence that happens against black women at the, at the hands of the state, but then also at the hands of our own communities. Andrea says that even people in Black communities don't always stand up for Black women. Women like Corinne Gaines. What's happening right now? Who's outside? The police. And what are they trying to do? It's charging. What are they trying to do? On the morning of August 1st, 2016, police let themselves into Corinne Gaines' home. They were serving a warrant for her failure to appear in court on charges related to a traffic stop back in March. A chain lock blocked their entrance, and an officer kicked the door in. According to police, Corinne pointed a shotgun at the officer and told him to leave. This started a standoff that would last for six hours. During the standoff, Corinne told police negotiators that the traffic stop in March was so traumatic it caused her to miscarry her twins. Corinne believed the police at her door would take her back to this very same precinct where she had been previously mistreated. Give you this camera and I want you to make sure you record all of this. Okay? They're going to try to fight me. Do you understand? And I want you to record every part. Do you understand? When you put your hands on me, I promise you, you will, you will okay, have to murder to me. You right. will have to murder me. So go ahead and get ready to do that. You will have to kill me. I promise you. Exactly. I'll put her down. Hey, come on, buy that option already. Police rushed Corinne's apartment, wounding her young son and killing her. But in the aftermath, many felt she brought her death on herself. In the case of Corinne Games, people were not willing to sort of step back and be like, well, what were the police doing at her house in the first place? (laughs) They were enforcing a warrant on an old traffic ticket, you know, and really more willing to look at and blame a black woman for her own murder by the state than to step back and say, but wait, what is the system that criminalized her in the first place for driving while black? And that is, I think, the, the systemic look that people aren't willing or aren't responding to because they're so busy focusing on blaming and not trusting Black women to be standing up for themselves and have the right to do that. Black discomfort around lifting up certain types of Black women as symbols of justice stems back to the civil rights movement. Most folks know about Rosa Parks, but less know about the darker-skinned activist Claudette Colvin, who refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery County bus a month before Parks did. The thing is, her outspoken reputation and history of arrest preceded her, and Rosa Parks was seen as more agreeable. The assumption being that Black women, who don't meet some mythical standard of respectability, are deemed not worthy of our protection, and that we shouldn't organize around them. And that's a problem. What happens in many instances of police violence against Black women and girls is that as member, our own communities are quick to judge and say, you know, this is not the person we want to be lifting up and organizing around. It's clear that women and queer folks are just as affected by police and state violence. Instead of ignoring this fact in conversations about the realities of police brutality and how to end it, we have to make sure that they are visible. So, the talk. How do we make sure it doesn't just center our Black sons? 
but also includes our Black daughters and our trans, queer, and gender nonconforming Black youth. When I hear about the talk and about how, you know, everyone needs to have a talk with young Black men, my initial response is to sort of want to jump up and scream, and young women, and young Black women, I feel like this is another way in which our communities are in some ways abandoning young Black women and they're saying, well, you know, the girls are fine, they're okay, they're not getting harassed by the police in the same way. You know, when uh, Trayvon Martin was first shot, uh, I said that this could have been my son. Another way of saying that is uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me. You know, when I hear mothers say, I'm really worried about my sons, or when I hear President Obama say, I'm really, you know, if I had a son, this would have happened. I just feel like turning to President Obama and being like, your daughters could experience, you know, this violence too. And so we need to have the talk with our daughters. We need to protect our daughters as much as we can. And we need to understand that policing is something that threatens the life of black women threatens the physical safety and the bodily integrity of uh, black women in many of the same ways as black men and in many ways that black men don't necessarily experience as often or at all. This is a talk that needs to be had with black children of all genders and all sexualities. And it may sound or look a little bit different or have some additional features, but we need to, to be thinking about policing as something that could harm all of our children. To be clear, We shouldn't have to live in a world where the talk is necessary. We shouldn't have to set our youth up for interactions with armed police where we pretend that they're the threatening ones. But we live in reality. And if you're giving someone the talk, here's what Andrea suggests. First, during an interaction with police, stay calm and do whatever you can to make it as brief as possible. The number one goal needs to be to keep the interaction as quick as possible, as brief as possible, and to survive it. That's actually the most effective form of resistance. Even though it may not feel like it in the moment, that staying grounded and not letting the officers escalate it, because that's where they get to claim power over you. And the way that you retain power is by staying grounded and keeping the interaction as short as possible and by surviving it. You don't have to stand for being sexualized during an encounter with police. You don't have to give them your number. You don't have to give them a smile. You don't have to give them you know, the response to any comments they're making about your body, that you can shorten the interaction as quickly as possible by simply saying, am I free to go? So if an officer is sort of saying, hey, baby, can I get your number? You know, give me a smile. You're looking good today. Am I free to go? And then keep it moving slowly where they can see your hands, but don't feel like you have to answer to that kind of commentary. Police officers are not entitled to get your phone number under any circumstances. They're entitled to see your ID and to get that information. If you're under arrest, then you can give them whatever numbers they need in order to contact people to let them know where you are or to get you bail or to get you out but or to talk to your lawyer. But, you know, your personal phone number is not the property of a police officer and you don't have to respond to their sexual commentary. Know that you have a right to request changes that make the interaction feel safer for you. So if you're pulled over or stopped in an isolated place, look for someone to witness what's happening to you. Ask them to observe at a safe distance. If there's no one around, you know, calmly ask a police officer, can we move to a more lighted or public location? I just would feel more comfortable there. You can ask for a supervisor to be called to the scene. Now, those requests aren't always going to be met, <laughs> you know, with, with a positive response. We recently saw, you know, a grandmother in Georgia asking for a supervisor to be brought to the scene and 
and experiencing tremendous abuse from a police officer. But it's something that you can try at least to let the officer know that you're paying attention to what's going on and, and that you want to make sure that it's being witnessed. And for some officers, they might be like, oh, this is more trouble than it's worth. If you're pregnant and you're being handcuffed, know that being cuffed with your hands to the back can cause an unsafe situation for your baby. If you're pregnant, generally speaking, you can ask to be cuffed in the front as opposed to in the back because once you're pregnant, your center of gravity shifts such that being rear handcuffed makes you very vulnerable to falling forward. Looking back to the case of Audrey Smith, the Jamaican woman strip searched in Toronto, Andrea reminds women that while police can do a superficial search of their outer clothing, anything more than that should be conducted in private. The reality is that the officer conduct, any, an officer of any gender can conduct a very quick superficial pat-down to make sure that you're not armed, if they have a reason to believe that you might be. But that is a quick pat-down of your outer clothing, sort of the area around your waistband, and anywhere else that you could be concealing a weapon. But if they don't feel anything that feels like a weapon, then they, that's the end of that. Or anything more invasive, you have the right to ask for a female officer. And you certainly have the right not to be strip-searched in public not to be subjected to any kind of search of your body cavities in public. Unfortunately, these things happen. And I would also tell trans and gender nonconforming folks that, you know, officers never have a right to search you to assign you a gender based on what your body looks like. One of the ways they often get away with doing that is by simply telling you to do it and assuming that if you do it, you're consenting to it. There will be more solution sessions after this quick break. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And Lord was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. Andrea says that while the general advice we hear during the talk is applicable, women and gender nonconforming folks' experience with police are different. I told Andrea about a time that I was pulled over while I was a passenger in the car of a woman who presents very masculine. Now, the police were rude to us both, but they were being especially awful to her. Eventually, I asked the police officer why he was being so horrible, and he said, if you want to look like a man, I'll treat you like a man, which apparently is a pretty common sentiment. You know, I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard the police officer say that, too. Is, is that like um, a, a thing they say? I mean, it was... It's, it's a thing they say all the time, and they say it often as they're committing violence. So one of the first times I heard it said involved a black lesbian in Boston who had an interaction with a police officer who said, you want to act like a man, I'll treat you like a man, and punched her in the chest. Literally to be like, I am punishing your gender nonconformity physically. <laughs> like, and in a location that is sort of considered gender specific. 
And I've heard every time I sort of mention that in a workshop, every masculine presenting black woman in the, or person in the room sort of nods <laughs> and, you know, emphatically, you know, indicating that they've heard this before too. I think the other way in which police officers police the lines of gender for black masculine gender nonconforming folks is to is through sexual violence, is to really sexualize them, to engage in very invasive risk practices. Now, Andrea doesn't think this is a case of masculine black women and gender nonconforming folks being treated like black men. It's different. It's a way of punishing them for their gender identity and expression. There's one I talk about in the book of you know, a sort of gender nonconforming masculine spectrum black uh, woman was stopped in her public housing unit and she was walking down her stairs of her own public housing unit and, you know, put up against the wall. And then there's a lot of conversation about, well, what's your gender? And, oh, you're going to act like a man. I'm going to treat you like a man. And I'm really going to aggressively frisk you. I'm going to be more physically violent towards you. And I think some people present that as, oh, you know, she's just experiencing what black men experience every day. She's being policed as a black man. And I think it's actually different. I think she's being policed as a black woman who's not conforming to sort of these racialized notions of gender and womanhood and who's being masculinized in ways that slavery masculinized black women in order to justify throwing them out in the fields to do work in the same ways that men were, regardless of whether they were pregnant, regardless of whether they had children, regardless of what was going on with them. We live in a world where the talk is necessary for our survival, but it shouldn't be. And the enraging thing is, even if you do everything right and remember all the steps of the talk, you can still end up dead. Clearly, these conversations are really necessary for our safety, really necessary for our survival, and they're just a matter of reality. But something that having the talk or having to have the talk makes me think about is how to balance or reconcile the fact that we are responsible for walking on eggshells and walking on our tiptoes and taking all of these precautions, but also knowing that these are institutional issues that the burden of should not lay on us. Absolutely. And I think that's the frustrating thing about both giving and receiving the talk is that it's a guarantee of nothing, right? It's It's a guarantee that you have some harm reduction strategies, you have some knowledge and information that might give you a little more power in a police interaction. But ultimately, it's no guarantee that those rights will be respected it's no guarantee that asserting those rights won't lead to more violence, and it's no guarantee that you'll come out of that interaction safely. So how do we get to a world where the talk isn't necessary? It's one that really exists only in our dreams right now, but I think it's by working towards a world where um, our communities are not saturated with armed police officers and where we have radically re-envisioned and enacted new approaches to safety. And this new vision of public safety must center Black women and those at the margins. What does it mean to create safety for a Black trans woman? What does it mean to create safety for a Black woman who's homeless or using drugs or engaging in prostitution and in ways that respect her autonomy, her agency, her bodily integrity, her self-determination, and create conditions not just for her to survive but thrive? Challenging toxic systems without reproducing them is big work, but it can actually start with us. But I think it's something that we can practice every single day in our own interactions with people, and it starts with caring about, asking about, trusting, respecting, honoring, and Black women and girls in our lives, and supporting them and demanding accountability from those who would harm them, whether it's 
R. Kelly, Bill Cosby, or the police officer on the corner as vehemently as we do, you know, demand accountability and reduce harms to all other members of our communities. In addition to centering Black women, girls, and gender nonconforming folks, Andrea says a solution to living in a world where the talk is necessary is rethinking our criminal justice system entirely and the way it criminalizes poverty and Blackness. Things like decriminalizing low-level offenses, like drug possession, that make it easier for police to extort people who are already marginalized. What are the conditions that make it possible for police officers to engage in that kind of violence against Black women and girls? And the power they hold in the policing of drugs, of prostitution, of poverty, of public spaces, and then, you know, find ways to reduce that power. And it might sound radical, but we need to start to envision a world without police. And without things that look like and feel like police to Black women and girls, and a world that creates the economic, social, cultural conditions that not only enable all Black women to survive, but create the opportunities uh, for them to thrive. But in the meantime, all we have is each other, our communities. We need to show up for each other and keep each other safe in a world that doesn't give a fuck about our safety. There, there may be nothing that we can do to stay safe in those interactions except for calling our communities to show up for us when they're happening and after they happen in, in order to make it clear that, we're, that as a community we're not going to tolerate violence against our sisters any more than we're going to tolerate violence against and our siblings any more than we're going to tolerate violence, police violence against black men and boys. So I feel for people giving the talk to their kids, but I do wish that, you know, that people all the way up to former President Obama would would give the talk to girls too and have the talk with girls, not just give it, but like sort of actually listen to what kinds of interactions girls are having with police officers because often girls don't feel like there's anywhere to talk about those things. So let's talk about it, all of it, together. To my sons, to my sweet brown babies, Kai and Caleb. Dear Zora, I realize this letter may seem strange, but we don't see each other as often anymore. Watching the two of you grow has been wonderful, and I'm so proud of each of you. In our pride as a family, meaning we, meaning your Nana, your mom, and I, often discuss how you will be in the world, how you will handle conflict and difficulties. It is wrong that every action you make must be thought about and weighed carefully. It is unfair that you are not afforded the luxury of being young and carefree without it being used as a judgment against you. Your lineage is greatness. Dominant society will debate this and see you and assume the worst. But this is America, home of the slave, land of the free, market, and we are target, practice. I can't pinpoint the exact moment My trivial concerns morphed into legitimate fear. But the fear is real, omnipresent, and crippling. Maybe it was when police gunned down Tamir Rice, a child whose reality was snuffed out because he was black and dared to play make-believe. Every siren I hear makes me question if you are safe, I worry. I know that despite doing everything right, you will still be judged as wrong, I worry because there are too many names and too many numbers and not enough reason for all these names, all these numbers. Just how many fucking bullets does it take to kill a black body? The only skin my body can produce is perceived as more bullseye than beautiful, more target practice than timeless. And though we fight to change these wrongs, please remember you are still bound by them. Reality is harsh and cruel and unfair. 
This world hates you and wants to destroy you. Don't let them. The challenge is to find joy in expressing your highest truth while the world's diametrically opposed to you doing so. But screw them. Do it anyway. Do not let them or anyone attempt to shut you down. Keep turning your head towards the light, and we, your family, will be there to continually remind you of the truth of who you are. Until next lifetime, Mommy. What's the solution, Bridget? Give youth the tools necessary for their survival. What's the solution, Bridget? Imagine a world without police. What's the solution, Bridget? Listen to black women. Listen to black trans women. Listen to black queer folks. Listen to black non-binary folks. Listen to black sex workers. What's the solution, Bridget? Show up for us. All of us. Afropunk Solution Sessions is a co-production between Afropunk and How Stuff Works. Your hosts are Bridget Todd and Eves Jeffcoat. Executive co-producers are Julie Douglas, Jocelyn Cooper, and Quan Latif-Hill. Dylan Fagan is supervising producer and Kathleen Quillian is audio engineer. Many, many thanks to Casey Pegram and Annie Reese for their production and editorial oversight. And many thanks to our on-the-ground Atlanta crew, Ben Bolin, Corey Oliver, and Noel Brown. And I would like to give a shout-out to all our amazing letter readers. Katie Mitchell, XPJ7, Sharonda Gibson, Nikki Gray, and Teresa Davis. The Underside of Power is performed by Algiers. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Afropunk.